Um, my name is Jake, and I am the Minister of Music and Media here at the Hollis Church. Um, but today I have the privilege of leading us in the study of God's Word. So we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, and picking up from a few weeks ago in chapter 10. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open that up to chapter uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I'll go ahead and read that for us and pray and we can get started. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When, you, when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend." Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you reveal yourself to us in your word, Lord God. And I pray that you just open up our hearts and minds to what you would have to say to us this morning. May your name be glorified as we go from this place and put into practice what you call us to. And may, in, in all things, Lord God, may we depend upon your grace. In your name we pray, amen. So what does God require? The answer to this question is the answer to everything. God is creator, and he creates with a purpose, with meaning. Discovering that purpose sets the course of one's life both now and for all eternity. Um, throughout all of history, people have been looking to the, for the answers to this question. From Abraham to Paul, it spans the breadth of scripture. Even in a secular age where many people deny the very existence of God, people are still searching for the answers to the meaning of life trying to find purpose in the daily grind of the mundane activities like changing diapers and sending emails. Who am I? What am I here for? Does anything we do really matter in the end? Without a concept of God, these questions quickly become nonsensical. Now, I was watching a movie a while back called A Ghost Story, which follows a husband and wife um, who are separated when the husband dies in a car crash. Now, the movie quickly takes on the tone of Ecclesiastes, which famously declares meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless, as you follow the departed husband, and he tries to reconnect with his dead wife. And then, or no, he's dead, his wife's not dead. So he's trying to connect with his, his wife, and he, he travels through time, discovering that nothing really truly lasts, not even the love that he shared with his wife. You know, the more popular film, Up, I'm sure you guys have probably seen that one, uh, agrees in a lot of ways with this bleak indie film as the saddest montage of all time follows the happy lives of an in-love couple that ends with the husband sad and alone, deserted by a wife whose love for him couldn't overcome death. You know, I know I'm starting out pretty bleak, um, but bear with me. There is good news because life has meaning. There is an answer to the question, what does God require? God actually answers this question over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture, coming to a climax in the story of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, come to show us who God truly is, 
show us and sh- to show us what God desires of us and what it means to follow him. In, in our passage today, Jesus actually answers this question and it's a pretty simple answer. We are to love God with everything and others by sacrifice. It seems pretty simple, but there it is. We are to love God with everything and others by sacrifice. You know, it's simple, but it's, it's not easy. It's a way of life, a purpose that calls us to give everything away. It's, it's an adventure that goes on and on forever. But how are we supposed to love God with everything and others by sacrifice? Well, Jesus actually answers this question in our passage today as well. So let's take a look at these verses, at the purpose for which God has made us. This passage is all about questions. It begins and ends with a question, and there's a lot of questions scattered throughout as well. But this first question comes from um, an expert in the law. In all of these questions, they, they revolve around this ultimate question of what does God require? So let's take another look at these verses. Um, and Luke writes, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked. How do you read it? So let's take a moment to set the scene. The author of this gospel telling of, of Jesus' life Comes or sets us right in the middle of an interaction between an expert in the law and Jesus. Now, this scene is is an, as one of many episodes that takes place while Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, as we learned a few weeks back from the previous chapter. And why is Jesus headed to Jerusalem, this epicenter of the Jewish life and faith? Well, he's headed there because the day is approaching when he will give his life in our place. But this day had not come yet. And so along the road, Jesus finds himself in a discussion with an expert in the law. Now, this expert was the protector of God's law. The Greek word used to describe him, nomikos, um, is derived from the word namas, meaning law. Now, these folks were scribes and teachers of God's way, some of whom had a following of disciples just like Jesus. Many were from a group called the Pharisees. Now, Jesus has had many bad interactions with the Pharisees up until this point. Um, And the Pharisees were members of a Jewish party that exercised strict piety according to Mosaic law. They were a movement concerned with the sanctification of every aspect of one's life. To this end, they added their own laws as a fence around the written Torah in order to keep people from breaking God's law and in their own understanding to provide salvation for the common um, Israelite. Uh, They were not numerous, but they were very influential and were the unofficial religious leaders of Jesus's time. So you can imagine that that many of these Pharisees were not happy when Jesus arrived on the scene and started to preach a different message, one that actually led a lot of people away from the influence of the Pharisees. Some were so opposed to Jesus and his teaching of God's kingdom that he, that he preached that they joined in a plot to put Jesus to death. Now we see this opposition in our text today as verse 25 says that this expert asked his question so as to test Jesus. He wasn't really looking for an answer. In fact, we see from his response to Jesus that he was sure of what the answer was already himself. He's not seeking to learn something from Jesus. He's actually either testing Jesus to see if his theology lines up with his own, or he's looking for a way to discredit Jesus, to show him as as a fraud, inexperienced in the ways of God. However, from the start, this expert shows himself to be the fraud. Now, the question that he asked is a popular one. Uh, but not a good one. In Jesus' day, there were many asking this same question. Actually, Jesus asked this same question later in this gospel account by a rich young ruler. Now, one Bible commentator writes um, that it's not surprising um, that this question is being asked on more than one occasion since it was a rabbinic theme. That is something that the teachers of God's way would talk about and meditate often. Rabbi Eliezer was asked by his pupil, Rabbi, that is teacher, teach us the way of life so that by them we may attain to the life of the future world. The question is couched in terms of doing. You can see this in the expert's words themselves. He asked, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life or future life. Now, the eternal life he is referring to is the promise of God to his people, the promise of God to Abraham that he would have descendants more numerous than the stars and a land for them to dwell in forever. Now, um, at the time of Jesus, these hopes for a people and a place had been broadened in an eschatological direction, which is a big word that just means last things or end times. Many Jews seeing the perpetual occupation and subjugation of Israel were looking forward to the end when they believed God would come and judge the nations and provide a safe place for the people of Israel to dwell in, in forever. What this expert fails to realize with his question, however, is that God's promises throughout all of scripture have always been based on grace, on his faithfulness, not on the faithfulness of his people. Abraham did nothing to deserve God's initial call, um, propelling him most likely out of idol worship. Israel did nothing to deserve uh, deliverance from slavery in Egypt and access to God through the Mosaic law and temple sacrifices. With his question, this expert redirects all attention and initiative onto himself rather than God. His is a righteousness that is earned, not received. God is the boss who, that gives him uh, his due for work hard done, not a father who loves to bless his children. Now, it's, it's a salvation by works, which certainly puts the pressure on, but also places control in our hands. Because if salvation is something that is earned, then God must give us our due. The expert's question is a bad one, but a popular one not only in the time of Jesus, but also in our own time. It's the American way, isn't it? We're all about getting things done, completing that to-do list, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's our culture's obsession with success and fame is unparalleled throughout all of history. And what else are such pursuits but a pathway to salvation void of any concept of God other than the self? You know, I blame my own generation raised on Disney platitudes that we could do anything, be anything we wanted to be if we were just worked hard enough, if we were just good enough. But that's not the case, is it? We can't be whatever we want to be, do whatever we want to do. Don't tell Mickey Mouse I said that. But, but like, just, can, just watch me play any, any sport of your choosing and you will see that I can never be a, a pro player. Except for kickball. I'm pretty good at kickball. You can ask my wife after the service. I've never lost a game except for one game, but I digress. Um, the, the fact is, the truth is that God, he doesn't fit in our agenda. Eternal life is not something that belongs on our to-do list. God has an agenda that we must fit into. Eternal life is something that is received by grace. So what Jesus does in response to this bad question is asked a question of his own. He turns attention away from the self and back onto God as he says, what is written in the law? The question becomes not what must I do, but what does God require? And this expert actually gives a pretty good response. Uh, Luke writes, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told them, do this and you will live. Now, scribes and teachers of God's way, like this expert in the law, were always looking for ways to boil down the 613 laws that you find in the Mosaic law to its essentials. In fact, in another gospel telling uh, written by Mark, a teacher of the law asked Jesus, which of the commandments is the most important? And Jesus gives the same answer as this expert in the law. He boils down all the commands of God, many of which are termed in the negative, what not to do, to these two positive commands. Um, two positive commands to love God and to love others as we love ourselves. This is a powerful thing. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, agrees with this expert in the law that these two simple things are what God desires of us. Jesus spends the rest of this passage focusing in on what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, but we should take a moment to look at this first command because it's the foundation of the second. Now, these two commands are quoted from the Torah, which is another name for the first five books of the Bible. 
The first is taken from Deuteronomy 6, 5, and the second from Leviticus 19, 18. This expert in the law and Jesus himself agree that these two commands sum up all the law of God. So what does God require? He requires love. First a love for him and then a love for others. Now added to this first command is a naming of a lot of parts of the self. We have heart, soul, mind, body. Um, what, what, it, what, what God is saying by this command is that we are to love him with everything, with all of who we are, our hopes, our dreams, our, our desires, our will, our intention, our abilities, with everything. What this looks like is putting our relationship with God first and foremost in our lives, which is not just about keeping away from the bad stuff. It's also about having the right relationship with the good things as well. My main man, Augustine, a theologian and leader of the church back in the fourth century, summarized virtue as rightly ordered love. He writes in his book on Christian doctrine, but living a just and holy life requires Uh, requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love of things that should be loved less or more or lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. Augustine is here saying is that when our loves are disordered, our lives become disordered. You know, God has filled this world with so many good things for us to enjoy. But when we love these created things more than the creator, it wreaks havoc in our lives. A love for lust, or a love for beauty becomes lust. A love for security, freedom. A love for food, gluttony. For rest, laziness. Timothy Keller, our former pastor in New York, said it like this. Sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will, will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. And idolatry is what happens when we love something more than we love God. By doing so, we actually give a part of ourselves away. And in the process, we destroy a piece of the image of God in us. God doesn't tell us to love him more than anything because he made us and he's owed such love. I mean, he is owed our love, but he also, he also calls us to love him in this way because it's for our own good. As Augustine is famously quoted for saying, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The the good things that we love so much will always fail us in the end. Every idol is a false god. Just look at the wife from up. She, She loved her husband perfectly, but death came anyways. You know, our closest relationships will, if they don't fail us in the here and now, will eventually fail us in the end because death, it awaits us all. But God's love is a love that goes beyond the bounds of death. His love is a love that lasts. And loving him in return is what we are made for. You know, this is eternal life. As Jesus says so again later in Luke chapter 18, when he's, at, he's asked the same question as this expert, this time by a rich young ruler um, who had everything he could ever want. Jesus says how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked then, who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we have left all we had and followed you. So he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, brothers or sisters, parents or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. And following Jesus means holding loosely to the things of this life and being willing to give all away because of our love for him. It's, It's about giving up the control we think we have to rest in the one we know we can be sure will never fail us. You know, it may seem scary, but the promises of God are a greater guarantee than the stock market. 
you know, the greater guarantee than our favorite candidates getting elected. You know, his, his love is a greater treasure than a savings account or all the Bitcoin in the world. His, his heart is a better home than that million dollar house on Queen Anne with a view of the water. We are to love God with everything. Now this first command, it bleeds into the second. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. The love that we share with God and and that he has for us is to be reflected in the love that we give to others. The disciple of John, um, or the disciple of Jesus, John, says it like this. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. We see almost a reciprocal relationship between these two commands. God, we, a love for God should naturally lead to a love for others. And a love for others reflects a heart that truly loves God. For every person, no matter who they are, is made in the image of God. Saying that you love God but hate your neighbor would be like saying you love your best friend but hate their kids. It just, it doesn't work. The command to love God is the basis of the command to love our neighbor, but the two commands, they go hand in hand. Jesus says with finality that obeying these two commands is life. As he says in verse 28, do this and you will live. Now this could have been the end of the conversation, but this expert in the law wasn't finished yet. He had more to question Jesus about, so he puts forward another question, one that prompts Jesus to more closely define what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, which I find really helpful because if love is what it means to fulfill what God requires, then it becomes all the more important to know what he means by love. Now, Jesus has answered the first question, what does God require? Now he answers the second, what does love look like? Now, this second answer stems from the expert again asking Jesus a question with an ulterior motive. Uh, Luke writes, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down to Jerusalem, to Jericho, and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. Now, do you notice anything funny about Jesus' answer to this expert's question? Right, if you, if you didn't catch it, he actually doesn't answer his question. Jesus pulls like a judo move of expert argumentation, and instead of answering the question of how one might define the term neighbor, Jesus answers the question, what does love look like? Now, I think he does this because the question, the, the, this expert, again, asks a poor question. He, at first, he asks, um, he asks how he can earn internal life instead of what does God require? And now he asks not how he can love as God requires, but who he should love. And he does so to justify himself. Now we can't be certain from the text what the, the expert, why the expert felt the need to justify himself. Maybe, maybe it was always his ploy to ask this second question and his first question was an icebreaker that he knew him and Jesus already agreed upon. Or, or maybe he felt a little silly when Jesus threw his own question back at him and in a sense told him to practice what he preached. Or perhaps he, he felt the need to ask Jesus another question because he failed in his first attempt to show Jesus up. 
because if, if that's really what he was trying to do, he didn't succeed with his first attempt. So perhaps he feels the need to test Jesus again and to show himself to be the expert in the ways of God. Now, whatever his motives, the second question the lawyer asks, just like the first, was a debated topic at the time. There were teachers and experts in the law who differed in their definition on the term neighbor, taken from God's command in Leviticus 19.18. Many Jewish people, however, defined this term as members of the same people and religious community. Um, In other words, people who looked and acted like they did. These were the people they were supposed to love like they love themselves, and in so doing, fulfill what God requires. But through his story, Jesus not only subverts the very question itself, but he broadens the understanding of neighbor in the process. Through his story, Jesus shows us that we are called to love with compassion, without distinction, and by sacrifice. Now, Jesus' parable, just like so many of his other parables, is an illustration from real life. The scenario that he puts forward that a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho was a trek that was taken all the time. And you can imagine Jesus surrounded by the disciples and a, a, crowd, a crowd of people from the nearby village, folks who had traveled with Jesus for months, and also ex, uh, skeptics like this expert in the law nodding their heads as Jesus went about his story. They knew this story because it was a common occurrence. People were robbed along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho often. One Bible commentator describes this road as, as a narrow, rocky passage of sudden turnings which made it the happy hunting ground of brigands. This was a dangerous road. So when the traveler is beaten and robbed, it would not be too surprising to Jesus' first listeners or to this expert in the law. What is surprising is what comes next. A priest comes along, sees the bleeding man, and does not help him. He goes by on his way on the other side of the road, as far away from this dying man as he can get. Now, commentators aren't sure why the priest did this. I mean, it is a story, after all, but conjectures can be made. Uh, Maybe he was afraid of getting robbed as well. He was afraid maybe robbers were hiding in the rocks, you know, that they would get him as well. Or maybe he had important business to get to. Or maybe he was afraid the man was already dead and by touching him, he would defile himself and not be able to go and help the worship of God's people in the temple. After all, God did command priests not to touch a dead body unless it was a close relative. And even then, they had to go through a process of ritual cleansing before they were allowed to enter the temple and go about the worship of God's people. But whatever his reason, this man does not show love, but he walks on by. The Levite, the the tribe that God chose to assist the priests in their work, does the same thing. He goes on his way without helping the man. Now, at this point in the story, Jesus' first listeners, they may have been expecting Jesus to bring in a common Israelite to the story. Because throughout Scripture, the Israelites are separated into these three groups, priests, Levites, and the common Israelite. They may have been expecting an anti-clerical twist to the story, but what Jesus does is far more devastating. Instead of bringing in a common Israelite, Jesus brings in a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were one of the most hated groups in Israel. If you remember a few weeks back, even the disciples had conflict with the Samaritans. No good Samaritan would have any dealings with or no good Israelite would have any dealings with a Samaritan, and the Samaritans didn't like the Israelites much either. There's a long history as to why. Uh, The Samaritans traced their lineage back to the Israelites living in the northern kingdom of Israel in the capital of Samaria. When the Assyrians conquered um, that region, they deported many of the Israelites to Assyria and repopulated the land with um, foreigners from other lands they had conquered. Now, these non-Israelites intermarried with the Israelites in that region, leading to the Samaritans of Jesus' day. The, the, the pure and unadulterated Israelites saw the Samaritans as, as unclean, ethnic half-breeds, uh, polluted with re, um, pagan religious beliefs. After all, the Samaritans had their own first five books of the Bible, rejecting the rest of the Old Testament. They had their own place of worship instead of worshiping at the temple. Um, But the hatred went both ways. 
The Samaritans also uh, mistreated the Israelites. Josephus, a Jewish historian in the first century, tells us that Samaritans were not adverse to ill-treating pilgrims going up to Jerusalem, even to the extent of murdering them on occasion. Yet here comes a Samaritan that does the opposite of the priest and the Levite, who should have been examples of godliness. This Samaritan shows us what love looks like. His love is compassionate, it's without distinction, and it's sacrificial. He is, as the parable is later titled, the Good Samaritan. Let's take a moment to look at each aspect of the Samaritan's love. First, the Samaritan sees the broken man and has compassion on him. The word used for his compassion is the same word used for the compassion of Jesus later in, or earlier in Luke when he sees a widow mourning over her dead son. In the Greek, the word means to be deeply affected in the inner being. The Samaritan saw the hurting man and he felt his hurt as his own. This is an important part of what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to have open eyes that, that see the hurting and feel their hurt as our own. It's the compassion of the Samaritan that causes him to reach out and help this hurting man. You know, and it leads him to, to help this stranger. And as he does, he reflects the very love of God for his broken creation. The same compassion displayed over and over again in the ministry of Jesus. But this, this is only one aspect of the way this Samaritan loves. Feelings only go so far in helping those in need. And the right feelings aren't always easy to come by, yet we're still called to love. This Samaritan shows us how. He offers help to this wounded man in spite of any harm that may come upon him, in spite of any ritual uncleanliness, in spite of this man likely being his enemy. For as Jesus tells his story among Israelites, it's likely that this man was an Israelite. This isn't love shown to a friend or a close family member. This, this isn't love given to get something back. This is love shown without distinction. Love shown to an enemy. You see, by bringing in a Samaritan to his story, Jesus breaks down any barriers that we might put around the definition of neighbor. If a Samaritan can act like a neighbor, then anyone, no matter their theology or politics, gender, race, or whatever it may be that separates us in this divided world is our neighbor. Our neighbor is not just the people who are easy to love, but anyone God puts along your path. Just think about the most annoying person in your life right now. The person who drains you of energy, who only causes you trouble. Just hold that image in your mind. That person is your neighbor. God has put them in your life for you to love them. But in what way are we called to love them? The Samaritan shows us again. In verses 34 through 35, we see the Samaritan bandage this poor man's wounds, put him on his own animal, and lead him to the safety of an inn. He cares for him all night, and in the morning, he provides him with everything he needs and more to go as he goes and finishes his travels. The Samaritan is overly generous in his care for this poor man. His care for him is sacrificial. He puts his own plans on hold, he gives his money away, and he puts himself in danger of being attacked all for this strange enemy without any thought of reward. This gets at the heart of how we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to love them sacrificially. The Samaritan shows us what love looks like. He shows us we are to love by seeing and feeling the pain of others, by reaching out without distinction, and by caring sacrificially. <clears throat> Do you love like this? Personally, I find it hard to imagine acting anything like the priest or the Levite. I mean, if I saw someone bleeding and dying on the roadside, I would help them, right? You would help them, anyone would. I mean, we're, we're more evolved than those people back in the day who had prejudices and, and things that caused them not to love each other. We're no, we know we're supposed to love everyone, no matter who they are, no matter how they vote. Sadly, this is not the case. The, the neglect and prejudice that happened in the past con continues in every time, in every place. It just expresses itself in different ways. You know, my Instagram feed during the election season is proof of that. All I see is fear and hatred for the other. The divide just seems to get wider and wider. 
Yet the political state of our country is an extreme example. <clears throat> the neglect to love our neighbors as ourselves, it also happens in little ways every day. I love myself more than my wife when I hog time in the bathroom. I, I care more about my good than the good of others when I seclude myself away uh, when I'm tired or exhausted, all while knowing there's an unbelieving neighbor that needs to hear the gospel or a friend at church who feels isolated and alone. Being here for almost two years now, I can attest that the Seattle freeze is, is real, but if I'm honest, I don't always mind it. Sometimes I would, after a long week, week of work, I'd rather not deal with the pains and problems of others. I'd much rather lock the door, turn down the lights, and put on the great British baking show. I know you've all been there before as well. Like, we are just so busy that we just don't have time to love as God commands. You know, we are time poor, not time rich. We're caught up in the endless due dates of work, kids' schools and activities, recreational activities, pursuing higher education so we can pay for that increasing rent and that, those increasing grocery bills. I mean, caught up in all of these endless activities, it still doesn't excuse us from the command to love. You know, as time poor as we are, we should always have time for obedience. Don't get me wrong, good boundaries are important. We should prioritize times of rest where we do things that are restorative. This is also obedience. My, my wife and I, we take a Sabbath day of rest every Friday. But the kind of love that God calls us to does require sacrifice. But sacrifice, it's just, it's just hard, right? It's not, it's not fun. It's, the, the loving in this kind of way, I, it's, it's difficult. I find it far more easy in my relationships with others to do what is comfortable or, or safe. I, I find it easier to keep people at a bit, a bit of a distance, you know, to smile at each other on, on Sunday, but not let, let people get to know the real us, the good and the bad. Now, how many times have you told someone you would pray for them, but then forgot the next day? Or thrown some change to the man flying a sign at the stoplight, but didn't, didn't look him in the eye? How many times have you let people interrupt your, your schedule, you know, other than your kids, your, your schedule and your, your plans? Yeah, I really don't like being interrupted, but isn't that what love is all about? To allow people to interrupt us, inconvenience us, to let them into our private worlds, to share our very selves. I think most of us can imagine allowing this for a select few, for family and friends, but the Samaritan is inconvenienced not by a close friend, but by an enemy, by a stranger. He sacrifices his plan, his resources, his very life for a stranger. And in turn, Jesus is asking the same thing of us. He's asking us to view all those we encounter as our neighbors, worthy of the same love we would give to those we most care for or respect worthy of the same love that we long for others to give us. The expert in the law asks the question, who is my neighbor? But Jesus, he, he ends his story with a question of his own. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? With this question, Jesus reveals that this expert was wrong before he started. He was looking for a way to obey God's law so that he could inherit eternal life by his own means. His his salvation was one that was earned. He made the law love your neighbor as yourself easier to obey because that was the only way he knew how to fulfill God's requirement. By narrowly defining it, it's those who looked and acted like he did. He made it easy to love, but it's not easy to love. At least not the kind of love that Jesus commands. Not the kind of love that our world so desperately needs. I think in the church we can act like this expert in the law when we place more importance on theological correctness than living out our faith in practical ways. The priest and the Levite, they were theologically correct. They were the folks in the community of faith lifted up as those to be emulated and applauded. Yet when it came time to put their faith into practice, they failed. While this Samaritan, this theologically misguided Samaritan fulfills God's requirement. 
By fashioning his story in this way, Jesus isn't saying that theological correctness is unimportant. But what I think he is saying is that theological correctness, without that same truth changing the way we live our lives and go about our relationships, is contradictory and fails to really fulfill God's requirements of us. In the information age, it can be so easy to fall into the trap of believing that knowledge will save us. You know, knowledge is important, but not all important. Truth matters, but a disembodied truth that makes no difference in our lives actually discredits the very truth we claim to believe. This is really convicting to me who spends hours every week studying the Bible. Don't get me wrong, studying the Bible is vital for our faith, but it's not enough as a follower of Jesus. We're also called to love in real sacrificial ways. As the church leader James writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes, daily food. If someone says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Is your faith more dead than alive? Do you love people who are different or difficult with the same kind of love that you desire from those you most care for or respect? Do you give away your most precious resource, your time? Do you just know the truth or do you know it and live it? How are you loving the people sitting around you right now? Does your love go beyond these walls? Do you love everyone who God puts in your path like he's called you to love our neighbors, even if things get messy or hard? You know, Jesus, he doesn't give us a way out. We're supposed to love our neighbors, each and every one, with compassion, without distinction, and by sacrifice. Yet so often we're selfish with our love. So often we only give our love away to our favorite people, only when it's convenient or easy. Yet love is what God's commands are all about. This kind of sacrificial love is, is what our world desperately needs. And it's clear from this text that fulfilling what God's requirements is not by following the example of the, the, the lawyer who made it easier to love so he could find a way to obey this law by his own means. But if that's not the answer, how can we possibly love as Jesus commands? What is the answer? Well, he, Jesus, he doesn't give us the answer in this passage, so sorry. No, but, but if you look at the verses that come before, he, he does hint at the answer. In the previous passage, Jesus has just sent out his disciples on a mission to spread the good news of God's coming kingdom. When, when the disciples return, Jesus rejoices, saying, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, immediately after this verse, Luke jumps in his storytelling to this smug lawyer who has all the right answers. Now, let's be honest, the disciples were not perfect, they continually misunderstood Jesus' teaching. They were full of pride, and they hated the Samaritans just as much as anybody else. But there was one important difference between the disciples and this expert in the law. The disciples could see. While they didn't understand Jesus fully, they saw that Jesus was the answer to their problems, the answer to the evil that they faced within themselves and within this broken and hurting world. You know, while the expert in the law was prideful enough to think that he could obey all of God's laws on his own if he just found the right way to fulfill them, the disciples were humble enough to come to Jesus with empty hands and learn from him the way to eternal life. And the Samaritan, he could see too. Like the disciples, he was humble enough to set aside his own plans, to put himself in danger's way, and to help his neighbor in need. But if you look closely enough, the good Samaritan is only a dim reflection of the better Samaritan, Jesus himself. Now, I remember the first time someone preached this passage and connected it to the gospel. I was in my school's chapel. 
assured that the preacher had nothing new to say about the parable of the Good Samaritan that I have heard a hundred times growing up. Um, I was in a college that really championed social justice, which is a good thing, but for me it became a legalistic thing, a way to be sure that I was right with God. In this, I looked more like the expert in the law than the disciples of Jesus. Um, I thought I would get more of the same from this preacher, but he surprised me. He turned the story around, and he put me in the shoes of the broken and bleeding man on the side of the road. And Jesus is the good Samaritan who comes to heal me of my wounds. It's this perspective that gets at the very heart of the gospel. As one Bible commentator puts it, that Jesus is not commending a new form of legalism in this passage. He's, um, he's not commending a new system somewhat different than the old, but pointing to the end of all legalism. The lawyer wanted a rule or a set of rules that he could keep and so merit eternal life. Jesus is telling him that life is not a matter of keeping rules at all. To live in love is to live the life of the kingdom of God. There's a power that comes when you move from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God. In his kingdom, you are under a new ruler who empowers us to live out his ways. In this, this new king loves us past, present, and future. His love is a love that conquers death and truly fulfills our deepest desires to love and be loved, to known and be known. It's this gospel love, greater than any, any, any personal efforts, self-love, or self-care that empowers us to love as God requires. Obedience in the life of a follower of Jesus in and by the Spirit is done not begrudgingly, but with joy as our desires are gradually changed to be the desires of God. As we move deeper and deeper into the people God has made us to be by his grace, loving others in this sacrificial way becomes our natural response. Undergrid not by our own efforts, but by the very power of God. And in this way, we become a reflection of the compassion of God himself, just like the Samaritan from our story. You know, our culture is obsessed with self-care, which can so easily turn into an obsession with self-love. In fact, most of the time I've heard the command to love your neighbor as yourself talked about, it's been combined with language about how it's impossible to love others if we first don't love ourselves. Yet this twists the focus of the command away from others and back onto us, which is at the very heart of sin. Martin Luther defined sin as an inward curvedness, a propensity to continually curve in on ourselves, to focus on our desires and our, um, our needs at the expense of everything and everyone else. But the two commands commended by Jesus in this passage are others focused. The first focused on God and the other focused on our neighbor. The note about self-love is an aside, an assumption, the natural way of things in a fallen and broken world. You would think in our self-obsessed culture that more people would be happy as they are free to pursue whatever they may want and desire. But depression and suicide are on the rise. Self-love is not enough. In fact, the continual pursuit of happiness leads to the opposite effect a continually increasing emptiness and despair because the things of this life will only and always fail us. Just as the author of Ecclesiastes put it, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. It's not that we shouldn't take time to care for ourselves. Of course, that's important. But when we depend on those times to give us what we need, that's when it falls apart and becomes self-love. The answer is not to try to love ourselves better or try to define the law so sharply that we can find an easy way to obey it. The answer is to receive a far greater love, the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, as John, the disciple of Jesus says, we love because he first loved us. In Philippians 2, Paul speaks of how Christ, who is equal with God, humbled himself and took on flesh and walked among us to win for us eternal life through his death and resurrection. To love in the crazy, sacrificial way that God requires, you must be humble enough to see yourself as the broken and bleeding man at the side of the road, 
robbed and beaten by sin and death. And Jesus is the good Samaritan who comes and heals us. And how does he heal us? He does it by taking our place, by becoming the the broken and bleeding man on the side of the road. He heals us by dying for us. All the words used to describe this poor, broken man are used to describe Jesus at his crucifixion. He was beaten, stripped, and left alone for you, for your sins, so that you might be forgiven and made new. This is how we love others as we should. We remember the love of God for us in Christ. He did for us what we could never do on our own. He fulfilled all of God's requirements, living the perfect life of love in our place so that those who put their faith in him received to their credit his perfect life of love as he then takes our sin upon himself. In this way, in Christ, by the Spirit, the life of love we are called to becomes not a heavy burden or a means to salvation, but a life of joy and gratitude in response to the love given to us by the God who died for us. It's only by seeing and embracing this wonderful love of God in Christ that we can be truly transformed to love God and others as we should, as we were made for. As I said when we started, we are to love God with everything and others by sacrifice. It's the power we receive through Christ by the Spirit that makes this kind of love possible. This kind of love is received, not earned. It's a gift and a privilege. Do you know the love of God for you? Are you under a different and better king? Are you humble enough to acknowledge your sin and see Jesus is the only means to eternal life? If you have done this, if you have become a disciple and not an expert, do you, do you rest in the love of God for you? Do you depend on him and his power instead of your own meager attempts at loving or caring for yourself or others? Do you share this great love of God for you with all those he places in your path? Now we turn now to communion, which is a weekly practice in our faith community, a means of grace where we encounter Christ and his love in a real and tangible way. This meal is a gift of remembrance for the bread, it represents Jesus' body given for us. The juice represents his blood shed for us. If you are a follower of Jesus, I invite you to take these next moments as you take of the bread and the juice to meditate on the amazing love of God for you and to meditate on the ways that he is calling you to love those around you. So you can go and get those elements ready if you are a follower of Jesus. Um, And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this meal is not for you. But I still invite you to, to meditate on the love of God because he loves you so much that he gave all away to save you. He died to save you. So I'll pray, and then if you're a follower of Jesus, please take of the bread and the juice at your own pace as we continue in worship through song.